thank you for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Chris Napier and Paul Blazy about all things running shoes. Chris and Paul are physiotherapists who are based in Vancouver and share a keen interest in running. They have both worked at all levels of sport with professional teams from around the world, and both, if I'm not mistaken, are pretty talented marathon runners themselves. Gentlemen, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. The whole world watched in amazement as Eliud Kipchoge recently set a new marathon record in Berlin, clocking in at two hours, one minute and 39 seconds. His performance in Berlin and his performance last year as part of Nike's Breaking 2 project have been analysed in great depth, but it seems everyone have been very quick to look past his lifetime of training and self-belief and go straight to his shoes. Why has there been so much hype about his shoes? Well, I think first to, to say would be that Nike have definitely done a great job in terms of the marketing of the shoes. So in terms of the hype around the shoes, they've created this expectation that everyone who puts the shoe on is going to run that 4% faster, hence the, the Nike Vaporfly 4% name. And in terms of their research, they've done a really good job in terms of getting that out to the public as well, uh, making it an actual event and getting it on the National Geographic uh, so it certainly didn't hinder their project in terms of getting this out to the general population across the the world. Actually, yeah, I, I think also that you know people are looking for something tangible when they want to uh, explain you know how how this world record uh, has dropped dramatically, and I think you know attributing it to a shoe is you know pretty easy for people to understand, but. You know, there's so many other factors which any marathon runner will tell you that go into a race and, and improvements. And, and we could look at a number of other things that may have uh, contributed to his ability to, to lower the world record. And I, I think one really obvious one is the fact that he, he'd already run faster than that. You know, he ran uh, two hours and 25 seconds in that breaking two project. So he already knew that he could do it. He could physically run that fast. So I think that's a huge benefit going into a race when you know you've already been able to run that fast so i think again people want to have uh something really tangible to hang on to when when they're trying to interpret these uh improvements and and that's probably why the shoe's been an easy target Uh, alex hutchinson would definitely compare with the the bit on the mentality and actually the expectation that he's going to break two hours uh he he admits himself he in if you ever saw the documentary about the breaking two he he said that he believed that he had a belief throughout his whole body that he was going to break the two hours and that really transferred over into his performance on the day and if you compared him to the other guys who had all of those same advantages in terms of the the pacing and the, the strategy to break the wind resistance there seemed to be his belief that actually was almost a differentiating factor between him and the other guys who on physiological variables were actually very similar to him Noel Burke had a great study a couple of years ago now that looked at the effect of smiling on running economy. And that one showed that you get a 2% improvement in running economy just by smiling. And, you know, we all know Kipchoge has that, that famous smile when he runs. And so perhaps that'll, that's all it is. You know, it's not the shoe at all. Are there any shoes that have been proven to make us faster? So, so the Nike shoe obviously has had uh, now a couple of uh, studies published on it, and uh, we know the 
the Hootcomer study uh, in Roger Cram's lab uh, that was the one that was you know, done before the Breaking 2 project, and that one showed a 4% increase in the in the running economy, um, and that's, that's obviously how that shoe got its name. And then also, uh, more recently, there is a study about Barnes that essentially replicated that study. Uh, they also looked at uh, comparing the the Vaporfly to the Adidas Boost, and as well as uh, a spike that's used in long distance track races. And they found similar uh, results, about four percent, which I think adds strength to the the argument that there is something about that shoe. And they they sort of agreed with the previous study that most of those benefits probably come from the resilience of the. Um, uh, or the, the compliance of the the shoe itself, of the midsole, and uh, and the bounce that you get back from it, and then obviously the other thing that's been known for a while is that you get a benefit of of having a lighter shoe uh, that can make you faster. And so, for every hundred grams of increased mass, you get about a one percent uh, decrease in your running economy. So that's that's super interesting. If you just take it back a step to the Adios Beast itself, which is the previous marathon record holding shoe. They actually found that shoe was 1% better than standard either, which is what you get in most running shoes nowadays uh, in terms of the boost foam. And when Hukama did their study, they actually looked at that in comparison to the boost and in comparison to the Nike Zoom Streak and found that it was 4% better in terms of energy cost. That doesn't necessarily direct translate directly to a 4% improvement in speed or time. So they tested the shoes at different speeds up to 18 kilometers an hour. Now Kipchoge was running it, I think somewhere around 23 kilometers an hour for the whole of the marathon. Now that doesn't, so that doesn't necessarily translate in terms of directly giving him a speed benefit, but it may have allowed him to run at his top speed for slightly longer without fatiguing. That's assuming that that plate that was inserted into the 4% which gave him some extra energy return didn't cause fatigue in any of his other muscles because it doesn't allow the foot to function in the normal way because you don't have the same bending forces going through the first MTPJ or the first metatarsal phalangeal joint therefore the calf may translate some further forces you may get more fatigue higher up the chain uh, it's, it's an interesting factor that they haven't actually tested because they only looked at those guys running on the treadmill over five minute bursts they didn't look at them over the course of a two hour marathon so it, it is proven to be 4% better from metabolic cost which is 80% of our energy usage during running but it doesn't necessarily mean you will be 4% faster and I think if you look at Kipchoge's times he ran two hours and four minutes in 2013 in Berlin on the same course in the Adidas Adios Boost. He then went back five years later, ran the world record, which was two hours, one minute, 39 seconds, which actually translates as a 1.9% improvement in time. And that's not to factor in all of those improvements in belief that he got from doing the breaking two, and all of the other improvements that you got as an athlete over those five years. And nutritional changes Nutritional too. changes, yeah. yeah. All of the things that you learn as you become more experienced as a marathon runner. Chris, you mentioned before about an improved running economy with lighter shoes. And 
We all saw an explosion of lighter or minimalist running shoes and barefoot running after Christopher McDougall's book Born to Run came out in 2009. What does the evidence suggest about minimalist and barefoot running, one for athletic performance and two for injury prevention? Yeah, so uh, if we if we talk about performance first, again, I think the the major benefits come from the lighter weight. Obviously, if you're not wearing anything on your feet, you've got less weight uh, at the end of that long pendulum that you swing back and forth, and so that's where the, the performance benefits come in. There may be some other benefits uh, Paul just alluded to about the actual um, you know mechanics in the foot benefits or perhaps costs that that come with more more bending through the foot as you go to more minimal footwear but we don't really know yet with with that and as far as injury prevention goes you know as we discussed in the the recent pgsm editorial with uh, myself and rich willie you know the there's no shoe paradigm out there right now whether it's minimalist maximalist uh traditional or or zero drop that has been shown to actually prevent injuries and my caution would be to say that the the minimalist shoes, I think, while there there may be some benefits long term that uh, if we if we get the formula right with training, and while there may be some some substance to the fact that um, having a more natural movement of the the foot could potentially prevent injuries in the future, we don't know that yet, and we also uh, know that from the studies that have been done. The transition period is very, very key, and there's actually been a number of increased injuries, uh, mainly to the the foot, with a fast transition to minimalist shoes, especially in those who are uh, used to a more cushioned shoe. I definitely agree with Chris on that front. There's there's no any concrete evidence at the moment to to suggest that you can prescribe a shoe that will improve injury. I think there's some interesting stuff out there and definitely some research worth undertaking on whether the heel-toe drop in a shoe could potentially be altered to depending on the injury. So for instance with uh, Gianfrancois Gullio's research out of uh, University of British Columbia, they looked at having a, a low drop from the heel to the toe as being beneficial towards knee osteoarthritis, which showed some positive results but then conversely I'd argue that maybe you'd want to have a high heel toe drop if you've got someone who's coming in who's had an Achilles tendinopathy to reduce the strain on the Achilles. What's meant by a low or high heel to toe drop? So the the differential between the back of the shoe or the, the pitch of the heel and the front of the shoe or the toe is the heel toe drop and it's essentially the drop difference between the two. The standard shoe would tend to be around about 10 mils, uh, 10 millimeters uh, between the heel and the toe. But as you alluded to in your question earlier, the born to run craze tended to set off this minimalist shoe drop or zero drop shoes. And people then started to think, do we want a more natural motion being closer to the ground with less stack height, i.e. The, the difference between the heel and the floor? and a lower drop between the heel and the toes. The other really interesting thing about the barefoot craze was that the shoe, they tested people who ran barefoot and found that the metabolic cost of running barefoot through having to stabilize the intrinsically through the foot was equal to the metabolic cost of having a 280 gram shoe on the end of their foot. So there actually appears to be a bit of a sweet spot where 
the Xi will give you some energy return, which will propel you forward, whilst also minimizing the work that your foot is having to do internally if you don't wear a shoe at all. So it's not just a case of the, the least weight is the best, because if we know that, that there is that extra energy you, haven't, you have to put in to maintain your, your foot stability if you don't run with anything on the end of your foot at all. Why then should we change running shoes? If someone asks me that question, I usually say if the, if the shoe itself is not comfortable for you, if it means that you're not getting out and running because of that shoe, those are good reasons to, to change shoes. If you want to change shoes, I think it's it's fine. And I think if you're if you're the, the, the biggest reason for a lot of runners would be to improve performance. And again, that goes back to moving to a lighter weight shoe. But I would caution that the, you do need to transition to any large change in, in shoe type. And if you're doing it because you think you're going to prevent injury, I'd, I'd again caution that uh, we really don't have evidence that that's the case. And as a clinician, I tend to look at things from three different perspectives. So you've got the performance front, which we've talked about. We've got the injury front. So has some, is someone coming to you already with an injury, say, such as an Achilles tendinopathy after wearing a low drop shoe? Maybe we want to just try and test out whether a higher drop would actually improve that or lessen their symptoms. And then you've just got the people who uh, just want to get out there and run day to day. Now, if, if we just go back to the performance for a moment, unless you're at that elite level, where you've maximized your VO2 max, where you've maximized your weight uh, power to weight ratio, where you've maximized your lactate threshold, then perhaps these performance changes that you get from a different shoe may make a difference. But to the majority of people that we see coming into clinic day to day, we're going to be looking at more of a difference around actually changing potentially some of those other factors and improving their training, improving their sleep, yeah. improving their nutrition to get those benefits rather I, than I changing the a, shoe. That's a really key point. And I think, again, it goes back to um, people wanting to have something tangible, you know, changing shoes to improve performance or prevent injuries. It's it's something that people can, can grasp onto. And I think we probably give way too much credit to footwear and, and what it what it can actually do or, or what, what effects it has on our running. And, and you know, you can look at uh, Fuller's uh, recent study with minimalist footwear and, and showing that the initial changes to the stride parameters that showed up with the change to minimalist footwear weren't present after six months. So basically people went back to running the, the way that they were running, even though they were now in minimalist footwear. And, you know, I think it's it's probably more important if we're wanting to prevent injury to modify training load, to increase strength in key areas. I think those are the, the main two areas. Hugh Kammer actually in his own study said that the majority of power and return in energy comes from the human body itself, not from the shoe. Exactly. And if you look at the joules of energy storage, you store 35 joules of energy in your Achilles tendon, the Nike 4%. Uh, return was something like seven so only 20 percent of the the actual energy that you get out of your achilles so if yeah. i had to tell someone i want you to get faster i want you to get better as a runner i'd probably get them to work much more on their calf strength which actually is also going to make them slightly more injury proof as a runner as well because it absorbs 60 percent of the floor forces coming up through your leg therefore 
we're going to be working on that much more than changing the shoe. And again, that's where these studies that have looked at the effect of the, the Nike shoe have been done on very elite runners. You know, these are sub 31 minute 10K runners. And so I think these people are already doing strength training. They're already doing a lot of running. So maybe we're seeing some some extra benefits of the shoe. But if we have the majority of runners who we see uh, day in and day out, we can probably make a much bigger difference through strength training and, and in, you know, perhaps just increasing their running as opposed to changing their shoes. I'm sure that that 200 gram difference in the shoe is going to make less difference than a, a four kilogram weight loss uh, program or, or whatnot. If, uh, if we get people coming in who are slightly on the bigger side in there, they just want to get better as a runner. I'm not going to be saying, right, first thing we're going to do is give you, give you that shoe. But for that 99% of the population who still want to be able to go out and run and still need to go and buy a pair of shoes, do you have any rules of thumb or any recommendations to patients or clinicians looking to go and buy a running shoe in the store? Again, I, I go with the comfort model and, and it's not because there's any proof that comfort will prevent injury or improve performance, but because you've got to have something comfortable on your feet if you're going to get out the door and go for a run. Being a bit of a shoe geek, I do know that there's certain different shapes of shoe and certain different manufacturers will make shoes that fit different foot types. As Chris said, comfort is the key guide. If the shoe's not comfortable, then it's never going to be any good. You, it's no good if the shoe's uncomfortable in mile one. If you want to go run a marathon, it's going to, only going to get worse by mile 26. So that would be the first point of call. Sometimes if someone comes and they ask me for a suggestion, I, from my knowledge of shoes, I might be able to give them some pointers on ones they might want to try out. But I always give them a few variable ones to try and then let them then decide out of those options which one they feel most comfortable in. Chris, in your recent BJSM editorial, you suggest that we should be looking at an alternative to running shoe prescription and highlight the importance of gait retraining, which was the topic of your recent PhD. Could you provide our listeners with a brief explanation of what is gait retraining and why it is so important within this context? Yeah, so briefly, gait retraining is just changing someone's running form from their natural form. And it could be uh, something like changing their, their kinematics, so their joint angles. It could also be something like uh, trying to decrease their uh, the forces that they hit the ground with. And essentially, we're trying to, to alter their natural running pattern through a, a, a series of training sessions. I think one of the interesting things is about the study is that we, we saw from your research that increasing cadence actually improves potentially the ability to reduce braking forces and hopefully reduce injury. Now, just bringing it back, sorry, to the shoe topic again, we know that from the Nike 4%, it reduced the metabolic costs of running by that 4%, but it actually increased braking forces and it reduced stride length, uh, sorry, it increased stride length and re uh, reduced cadence so the other question I would ask is if you were to wear that shoe as a daily trainer, then is that going to actually increase people's injury risk? And we don't know that yet because it hasn't been out for long enough and people haven't been wearing it as a daily shoe. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the changes in stride length and such were, were quite minimal. They were less than 1%. So I think we have to be a little bit careful about sort of extrapolating that to injury risk. But, you know, one thing they did 
say in, in uh, Hukheimer's study was that the peak vertical ground reaction force may be, uh, that was the, the most significant biomechanical factor between the shoes and, and actually an increased peak vertical ground reaction force was associated with a decreased energetic cost. And you know, again, that may go back to the compliance of the shoe and, uh, and the bounce back that you get from that shoe. But of course, if we're talking about injury prevention, typically the, the logic goes that increasing ground reaction forces may increase injury risk. Of course, there's, there's debate over that. And, and I think there's probably, a, just like the, the, the topic of shoes, there's probably a whole host of other things that affect that, namely training load and, and, and strength in individual runners and their ability to adapt to those loads. But uh, I think you know we have to keep in mind that increased performance doesn't always and often goes against the trade-off of injury risk. Paul, you're a self-proclaimed encyclopedia of running shoes. So my question for you is, what's next in the world of running shoes? What's next? I think potentially uh, more personalized running shoes. So I think it, it would be good for more studies to come out on the injury prescription paradigm for shoes. So do we have people who would benefit from a more maximalist shoe, say like a hoker, uh, to protect their forefoot because they're nice, stiff and rigid? People who have had an Achilles tendinopathy, can we design shoes for that individual that actually we then just put an upper on the shoe and then away you go, that is your shoe for the next six months. I think with 3D printing and things like that, that is potentially going to be something that we can look at in the future. Yeah, we're already and seeing that with orthotic design. So it's definitely something that we, we might be able to look at. The other thing uh, I'd be interested to, to see is based on some of the research, ca- research capture, if we can get more study data from runners over a long period of time and with runners who've had previous injuries, whether we can use a bit more machine learning approach to prescribe shoes based on the history of lots of runners and then go from there. Yeah, I agree. I think big data will have a, a role to play in, in the uh, the new technology going into shoes. And I think the ability to, to measure and actually collect that data will come through wearables. And so, you know, we're seeing more and more runners, you know, running with uh, foot pods on that can measure uh, accelerations and, and looking at uh, more GPS tracking ability and, and pooling that data as, as uh, we've seen in the the recent New York Times study looking at Strava data. Uh, so I think we, we will start to see more personalized shoe prescription, whether that translates to in- increase injury prevention capability of those shoes is still uh, a, a good question, I think. Yeah. But I think we will start to see, and, and we have already started to see some companies like Brooks moving to that. They've got their preferred movement path paradigm that they're sort of working on with their shoes now. Before I let you two go, could you provide our listeners with a couple key takeaway points that they could use in their practice. Yeah, I mean, I think if anything, the the editorial that we just published and the the debate that ensued over uh, social media, it's proven that uh, it it can be a very religious topic when we when we're talking about shoes and 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 I think we really have to as clinicians be responsible to our our patients and 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 only sort of go as far as the evidence will allow us in making claims about what shoes can and can't do. And, and I think for most of us, that just means taking a step back because we've been inundated by, by marketing and uh, by our own beliefs uh, for many years. And, and I think we do actually have good 
published uh, high level one uh, evidence now on on some of these shoes and and essentially at, at this point it's it's telling us that there isn't any one shoe type that can prevent injury and so I think that's that's one key takeaway and I think the other key takeaway is that shoes themselves can only do so much and there's probably a lot more other areas that we should be focusing on that can make a, a much bigger difference and and that would be again you know, providing good education on, on training load and injury prevention, as well as uh, strength training for runners. I definitely agree. The The biggest benefits you're going to see as a runner are going to be through consistency over time, slowly improving on your times, working on those weaknesses that you get in terms of your strength, looking at optimal recovery, so good nutrition, good sleep hygiene, and those kind of variables the other thing that I would be saying to clinicians is when you speak to your your clients or your patients, you want to make sure that you get from them exactly what they want in terms of do they want it for performance, do they want it for an everyday trainer, have they had injuries in the past. So that good clinical history that we all get taught to take in university is key to, to making sure that you get the right advice for the person. And if it, if it does come down to the shoe, yes, there may be some shoes that are proven to be slightly faster than another one. But if overall, if you've got all of these other areas for improvement, they're going to be much more key. And, and injury prevention and consistency is the, the biggest variable of them all that is going to give you the biggest bang for buck. Paul, Chris, it's been a pleasure speaking with you both. Thank you very much for your time today. If our listeners would like to find out more about you or your work, where should they go? I do practice clinically still at uh, Restore Physiotherapy in Vancouver for those people in Vancouver. I'm also still doing research out of UBC and also uh, a postdoc at SFU right now, uh, both based in Vancouver. At SFU, I'm actually uh, studying wearable technology now as it applies to runners. And Paul and I both uh, are involved with the UBC Run Clinic, which is going to be a, it's, it's a biomechanical lab that can, we, we offer a, a running gait analysis service, and uh, we're hoping to provide more opportunities through that clinic in the future, and it will also be a, a really good research lab that we're hoping to uh, develop. So my interest in, in running extends to the UBC Run Clinic, and also uh, I continue to work for the British Journal of Sports Medicine, which... Hopefully, I'll, I'll get some further blogs out there for everyone to read uh, on the running topic uh, if they find it of interest. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at Runner Physio. And I'm at, at Blazy85. You've been listening to a BJSM podcast with Dr. Chris Napier and Paul Blazy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends or leave us a comment and connect through our social media channels. You can also follow all things BJSM via our app, where you can find more podcasts, our latest articles, and other content. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.